the 2022 review with Sean Defoe on News Talk. Hello and welcome to part two of the 2022 review. Sean Defoe here with you for the next hour. If you missed the first half of the show, the first half of our look back on the year that was, you can catch it on podcast. Just search for Let Me Explain with Sean Defoe. It'll be there in the feed as a bonus episode, along with all the other podcast topics that we have covered over the year. In that last episode, we went from COVID to Kiev, the Oscars, the top film songs of the year and everything in between. And there's still tons to get through on this particular episode. In this first part, we're going to be doing something of a whistle-stop tour through some of the big stories of the year. And the story which most of you likely felt most was, of course, the kickback from that war in Ukraine and inflation, inflation, inflation. Everything was becoming more expensive. Petrol and diesel going above €2 Euro a litre. It becoming more and more expensive to heat your home, particularly through the cold snap that we've been through very recently. And the pressure was mounting throughout the year on the government to do something about it. Here's TD Paul Murphy on News Talk Breakfast ahead of the budget. One thing that can be done actually at, at no cost to the Exchequer and is vital is the question of price controls. Um, we should impose price controls on petrol, on diesel, on electricity, on kerosene, um, just as has been done in France, Spain and Portugal and cut into some of the super profiteering that is going on by the energy companies in those sectors and guarantee people, OK, a reasonable price for those uh, products. And um, we should impose a windfall tax on the profits being made by these uh, corporations. Um, and then we should, for example, you know, increase people who are on social welfare payments, basic fixed income. They have to be increased by 10 percent. I mean, Inflation is now running at almost 10%. Are we saying these people should go further into, into poverty? And then we should have a measure to ensure that all people are protected. We should give people a significant uh, credit, uh, as was done in terms of the, the okay. electricity credit. Uh, Pascal Donahue and Michael McGrath brought the budget forward by a couple of weeks, releasing the biggest budget in the history of the state, including one-off lump sum payments, 600 euro worth of electricity credits to every household, and raising the higher rate of income tax a change, which will benefit some people by about 800 euro a year from next week. I welcome the opportunity to present budget 2023 to this house. When we gathered in this chamber for budget 2022, we were emerging from the very worst of the COVID-19 pandemic. We now face a further economic challenge. A big row brewed in the government over Pascal Donoghue's future as president of the Eurogroup, that group of EU finance ministers. Finally and eventually, it was agreed that both he and Michael McGrath will get to attend the meetings and Donoghue was comfortably re-elected as chairman. I am enormously humbled and privileged to gain their trust again, to continue to work on their behalf. Uh, we have so much to do. We want to look at how we can work even better together to overcome our challenges and to pursue the great opportunities that await the euro and the people of Europe. This year, central banks across the world decided to hike interest rates in response to inflation running at 9 or 10% for most of the year. Trevor Grant from Affinity Mortgages joined me on Let Me Explain to, well, explain why the ECB is doing it. So essentially the theory behind ECB increasing interest rates is they want to cull um, personal expenditure to cool the market. A lot of money pent up uh, during COVID for for some people, clearly not for all, uh, a lot of expenditure going on. So the economic theory is that if you increase interest rates, you'll curb uh, public expenditure 
and people will spend less. And if they spend less and buy less goods, the prices of those goods could, should normalize. Now, we also have the much greater issue here of the war in Ukraine, which is having a profound impact on a number of things, both for those people in the Ukraine, most importantly, but also economically for the rest of the world. Um, so the theory is put up rates, curb the expenditure habits of people, get the uh, cost of living down effectively or inflation down uh, by doing that. While many people were struggling to get housing this year with rising prices and interest rates making it more difficult, some people were watching the home around them literally crumble because of MICA in particular. This year, the government agreed a 2.7 billion euro redress scheme, though campaigners say it's critically flawed. And in July, the government officially lost its majority when Fine Gael's Joe McHugh resigned over the issue. I feel that I haven't achieved what I wanted to achieve on, the, on behalf of the constituents I represent, many of them here tonight, many of them at home, still trying to figure out how they're going to enter the scheme. What I'm asking you, Minister, what I voted against this, and I'll be voting against uh, this right the way through, uh, this is not over. It's not over for the people. The scene for the government losing its majority had been set by a row over the public ownership of the National Maternity Hospital. During a Sinn Féin motion, Green Party deputies Patrick Costello and Nasa Hurrigan voted against the government and were suspended for six months. Make no mistake that I do not want to see this government and the, the institutions of this state continue in, 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 a, in what we've done in the past, which is assume that we know better when we actually don't and we should listen. And we should clarify before we sign off. The people involved in this discussion are not just the, the, the minister here today, and, and thank you for your time. It's also the three leaders of the coalition parties. It's also the master of NMH. And if we are truly listening to women, I would ask, I would implore that those five men act they both now rejoin the Green Party in giving the coalition a thin majority of just one vote. Controversy dogged Leo Varadkar for much of the year too. First of all, I want to restate my apology to the House. Uh, I'm sorry for my actions that gave rise to tonight's motion. And I accept responsibility for them and that responsibility alone. His leaking of a confidential GP contract was investigated by Gardaí, with many unsure what would happen if he was charged. Eventually, the DPP made a decision not to pursue the matter, and the standards in public office watchdog didn't investigate either, though opinions were split in the body over that decision. In May, and after so long being afraid of any new viruses, another one entered the public consciousness, monkeypox. Here's Professor Luke O'Neill. First found in monkeys in 1958. That's when it begins. They, they discover this new pox virus in a monkey. It's mainly in rodents. That, that's the main source. Wow. They're the reservoir in Africa. It's endemic in many African countries and, and a very rare enough disease, even in those countries. You get a few hundred cases per year, you know, in the Congo and places like that. And, and what happens is the rodent might bite someone or you can have human to human transmission because it is a, through close contact only. But like the blisters you get, like the pock marks, they're infectious, you see. And if you rub a blister into a wound, then it might spread that way, you know. Or fluid saliva is in saliva as well. That's how it spreads, mate. It's nothing to be too fearful of all these headlines. Of course, I think we're hypersensitive to new viruses, aren't we? Um, at the moment, the scientific mystery is they can't trace where several people have caught it from. Uh, the first case was May seventh in the UK. That was someone who came back from Nigeria and must have picked it up there off a rodent potentially. The other people, though, they can't really figure out how those people caught it. And when we'd all largely forgotten about viruses of various kinds, we decided we'd all quite fancy a holiday. And Dublin Airport suddenly found itself very, 
very busy. Queues out the door, car parks turned into overflow, flights being missed. Remember myself arriving to the airport nearly four hours early for an EU flight, just to be sure I got through security on time. And don't get me started on the lost baggage. It got so bad, the army was almost called in. Well, I want to talk about Dublin Airport, what's happening there. The government has supported a request uh, from the Minister for Transport, Eamon Ryan, uh, for the Defence Forces to be trained, to be on standby to assist uh, the DAA, Dublin Airport Authority, with security duties at the airport. Uh, Graham McQueen is the uh, Media Relations Manager at the DAA. He joins me now. Graham, can, can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, so I think from an airport point of view, we were asked to put in place or to put forward a number of possible contingencies that would help us get through the very busy summer that we're facing into, about 50,000 passengers a day on a daily basis going out at the moment. So these, this was one of the suggestions that we put forward. I would emphasise that it's purely there as a contingency. Uh, we don't expect to need it, but it is there if we do so over the coming weeks. Our reporters were out covering all those stories and some of them hit harder than others. In October, one story in particular dominated the airwaves for all the wrong reasons. It's five o'clock, good evening. As you've heard, there's been an explosion at a petrol station in County Donegal. It happened in apartments above a shop in the town of Creesla, and it's understood a number of people are unaccounted for. Emergency services are at the scene, and Gardaí are asking motorists to avoid the area. Uh, Ten ten people uh, left dead by the seven adults, uh, three children. The the ten victims, Leona Harper, 14, Robert Goway, 50. Sean Flanagan, uh, Garway, uh, five, that's um, a, a father and a daughter. They're going in to buy a cake for uh, their, their mom, a birthday cake. Jessica Gallagher, 24. James O'Flaherty, 48. Martin McGill, 49. Catherine O'Donnell, 39, with her 13-year-old son, James Monaghan. Hugh Kelly, 59. And Martina Martin, uh, 49. We expect life to have some kind of fairness, or uh, even though it doesn't, but that, you know, there are actions and there are consequences. The this, fragility this, of this, life this is... This was just yeah. a bolt from the blue and, and unbelievable tragedy inflicted on the community. Uh, for more on this, we're joined now by the local parish priest, Father John Joe Duffy. Good morning to you, Father. Thank you very much for speaking to us here on News Talk Breakfast. How is the mood currently in Krishla? Are are people, are they still in shock? I think we're still in shock. We're only starting to move away from shock to begin to realise the reality of what has taken place. And I think it was only yesterday evening as the first uh, victims of this accident began to come home that we began to realise, I think, even though we realised what was happening, we were still in a state of shock. It began to become very real, and just as the people stood out along the road the whole way yeah. from Letterkenny into the village with candlelit vigils and so on, uh, it's becoming more and more real. Our reporter, Mairead Cleary, was in Creesla. Mairead, what was it like covering that and meeting and being around a community that was quite literally in mourning? It was like something I've never seen before at all. Um, I remember getting the call to get in the car, get up there as soon as you can um, and arriving there. Uh, by the time I arrived there, a vigil was was going on. And, you know, the look on people's faces was was it was beyond tragedy, to be honest. Um, 
And as a journalist, you didn't know quite how to approach people either. Um, and it was more so just about being there and absorbing the atmosphere, which was incredibly heavy. It's honestly like something I have never seen before. Even I remember, and I still remember that person who was there at that vigil that night. They were covered in bandages, clearly burn marks um, and clearly uh, were there. Now, she was being supported by two people walking in and out um, of the church. But, you know, one journalist said to me, I wonder if she'd been supported because she has to be mm. or is it just she genuinely needs to be guided into this church she is so in shock at the minute like. mm. and that, that seemed to be the tone for the week that yeah. even as it went on because we talk about tragedies a lot it's sort of the nature of the media sometimes you can make sense of them but this is yeah. one of those ones that's very hard to that was true. And then as well, there was no blame anywhere. There was nothing that could be could be pinpointed. It was so unexplained. It was such a freak thing to happen that there wasn't so much anger as there was just complete sadness, complete shock. Um, you know, someone, uh, an older reporter said it was similar to what was seen during the Troubles. Mm. Um, but in that case, there was always an enemy. Whereas there's nowhere to put that kind of energy. It was just angry at the unknown, the unexplained, I suppose, was, was really present there. And it's went on for the full week as well yeah. because you not only had one funeral but you had multiple funerals and sort of this outpouring of grief what what was it like when I presume you had the same people coming back every day and each day trying to deal with the loss of a different person yeah Chrysler is a really small village um, and it's basically just one street um, the cars I noticed I would be attending a funeral then I would go to my car to file a story for our news here um, by the time I'm finished my reporting um, responsibilities the next funeral would be going on the cars around me wouldn't have moved so it's the same people attending both of those funerals that they were able to just wait around until the next one now there was funerals in other parishes that I also attended and you know, the same faces were at so many of them. The same kids and teenagers were at so many of them, which has really stood out to me. There's no doubt they're still processing what happened. If those people can get over that is, you know, it is a question. I'm sure some people will never be the same again. Mm. What was that mood like, I suppose, as the week went on? As, and it went from that yeah. initial numbness to then all the emotion that comes with time as you're dealing with grief. Yeah, people were exhausted. You could see in, in the faces of people, even Father John Joe Duffy, he was giving so many sermons. He, I think he must have spoken at nine out of the 11 funerals that took place and he was exhausted. The people there were exhausted. Um, there was also a sense of, you know, they wanted the media to leave. They just wanted time to just sit with it at that point. People were so tired and so exhausted of going to those funerals, of trying to get to grips with what happened that you could just see they wanted all of the formalities of interviews, of funerals, of burials to stop and them actually just to sit with what happened and process that. You could really sense by the end of it, there was almost an urgency to wrap these up because they just wanted to to, to try and process it. Mm. And one of those communities that we're, we're obviously thinking of this time of year yeah. in particular, a, a very different Christmas, a very difficult uh, Christmas as well for, for all of those who have involved. Marie Cleary, uh, a reporter with Newstalk. Thanks for joining us on this uh, year in review. Thank you. The 2022 Review with Sean Defoe. This is News Talk. The 2022 Review with Sean Defoe on News Talk. Welcome back to the 2022 Review. Now, another big year in the world of tech. Meta, the owner of Facebook, continued to plough ahead with its metaverse idea. Jess Kelly brought this report to Breakfast Business on how it's going, featuring a product launch from Mark Zuckerberg. A future where you can be present together with the people you care about, where you can teleport into any experience from anywhere. 
where your devices just get out of the way and you can focus on the people you're with and the experiences you're having. I think that this is some of the most amazing technology of our generation. It's going to open up opportunities to build incredible things. We believe in this vision so deeply that we renamed our whole company after it. And today, we're going to take another big step forward. Meta executives told us that one in three apps in the Quest Store are making revenues in the millions and 33 titles have made more than $10 million in gross revenue. The company unveiled a new Quest headset. It's called Quest Pro and is a high-end VR unit, which is available for purchase from October 25th and costs €1,799.99. Iron Man is joining the metaverse alongside other gaming titles, but it's not all fun and games. Microsoft is also partnering with Meta to bring teams to the virtual reality headset to enable workers to get involved too. Another high-profile partnership that's on its way is with NBC Universal. We heard that the Peacock app is coming to Quest alongside some special experiences with IP such as The Office, Universal Monsters and DreamWorks. And of course, how could you forget, this year, Elon Musk bought Twitter. The world's richest man is now promising a Twitter makeover, renaming his own account Chief Twit and proclaiming the bird is freed. Elon Musk carried a kitchen sink into Twitter HQ this week, tweeting, let that sink in, then fired senior execs once closing the $44 billion deal. For years, Twitter has battled hate speech and disinformation. Today, a raging debate over what Twitter is now and will soon become. How well that's all gone since. On the jobs front, this year saw a lot of tech companies shed jobs. Elaine Burke, editor of Silicon Republic, joined News Talk Breakfast to discuss why it's happening at companies like Twitter and Meta. I mean, I'm not an economist, economist, but it does seem corrective to me. The amount of scale and investment being pumped into tech over the last number of years, even through a global pandemic and even through the economic crises that we're currently involved in at the moment, uh, coming from the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the fallout on the energy crisis, all of those things happen in the context of tech still experiencing massive numbers of scale and massive numbers of growth. And if you look at Meta's figures in particular, that growth, those 87,300 employees, that's 28% growth year on year just this year. So they even they have scaled massively in recent years. And that's, that's a, a huge number of people to be taking on during uh, what was some shaky yeah. economic times. And let's not forget, of course, the tech that you have been using and viewing. Wordle became something we all logged into each day where you had to riddle out a five-letter word in six tries. It gave rise as well to many imitators like Hurdle, which is where you have to figure out a song, and Worldle, which is guessing a country by its outline. But what were you watching in 2022? The latest season of Stranger Things was a huge success for Netflix, while the Star Wars universe really expanded into TV, with Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi doing battle again. Have you come to destroy me, Obi-Wan? I will do what I must. And shows like Andor winning critical acclaim. Amazon, meanwhile, launched the most expensive TV show ever made. The Lord of the Rings spin-off Rings of Power reportedly cost $58 million an episode. My brother gave his life hunting the enemy. His task is now mine. 
The Game of Thrones universe returned to our screens as well, with House of the Dragon more than making up for the disappointments of the last season of Thrones. Beginning tonight, King's Landing will learn to fear the colour gold. Now, from the court in Westeros to the courts in Dublin, because this year's been another very busy one for the judiciary. And joining me is courts correspondent and host of the Inside the Crime podcast, Frank Graney. Frank, a very busy one for you this year. And we might start with what's being dubbed by some as the trial of the century, the trial of Jerry the Monk Hutch. 2022 in the courts in general has been a very busy year because over the past few years, obviously because of the pandemic, the court wasn't at times hearing jury trials. So there has been a backlog and as a result of that has been particularly busy this year. But certainly in the last few months, uh, Jerry Hutch's trial has dominated the headlines. It has dominated my time in the courts. It has been heard before the non-jury special criminal court. And even before the opening of that trial, there was an awful lot of interest in it, not just because of the person who finds himself in the dock accused of murder. And I should say Jerry Hutch has pleaded not guilty to the charge, but also I suppose the circumstances around what happened at the Regency Hotel back in 2016. I think we've all seen and we all remember the images um, you know, splashed across the newspapers in the aftermath of that shooting that claimed David Byrne's life where you had three men armed and for all intents and purposes looking like armed guardies storming the Regency Hotel. There were already two other gunmen inside the hotel at that point, flat cap and a man dressed as a woman and famously or infamously there was a photograph of them splashed across the front page of the Sunday World. But before Sean Galan got up to open his case before the three judges of the non-jury court, you know, outside of that we had Jonathan Dowdall, former Sinn Féin counsellor, who was also supposed to stand trial for the murder of David Byrne. But that murder charge was dropped at the 11th hour. It emerged that the Director of Public Prosecutions had accepted his plea to a lesser charge that of facilitating what happened at the Regency Hotel that day. He was sentenced to four years in prison for it. We heard at the time that he was in protective custody, that he was being assessed for the Witness Protection Programme. And crucially, he has agreed to give evidence on behalf of the prosecution against Jerry Hutch. Um, so all of that was thrashed out before the trial even opened. In fact, it delayed the beginning of the trial because Jerry Hutch's defence team had to, I suppose, go back and look at their strategy approaching the case. So it's been going on for months and it's likely to be some time before we have our closing speeches. And again, there isn't a jury going to consider um, Jerry Hutch's guilt or otherwise that will ultimately be left to the three judges of the Special Criminal Court. And I should mention, because you'd be forgiven forgetting, for forgetting, that there are also two others on trial, uh, two Dublin men, Jason Bonney and Paul Murphy. Now, they're not accused of murder uh, they are accused of facilitating the commission of the crime, that of the murder of, of David Byrne by providing logistical support through various vehicles. And they too have pleaded not guilty to those charges. Another big judgment that we are expecting in 2023 and one that could have really, really far reaching consequences is the one in the, the Graham Dwyer appeal. That's right. It's hard to believe, but it's been seven years since Graham Dwyer stood trial for the murder of childcare worker Elaine O'Hara. We all know at this stage that he was found guilty of it and he hasn't strayed too far from the headlines since. And this year again, he has featured in a number of our news bulletins and coverage across uh, the station. He challenged the law that allowed 
his mobile phone data to be retained and subsequently accessed by the investigation team. He took that all the way to Europe. Um, He went to the Supreme Court here in Ireland, obviously the highest court in this land. After winning um, a significant legal challenge before the High Court, the state then appealed that decision to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court saw clarity in relation to that controversial legislation uh, before the courts of justice in Europe and they leaned on the side of Graham Dwyer. They decided that the law which allowed this mobile phone metadata, call records, location data, things like that, that were used at trial, they said that that law was essentially in breach of European law. So at that point, the state dropped its case. And what that did was it paved the way for Graham Dwyer and his legal team to bring an appeal against the murder conviction seven years after he has been after he had been uh, convicted. So that's in train now. Now, that took place before the Court of Appeal over the course of two days. You know, as you would imagine, the one of the main grounds of appeal is those call records that the guard they were able to use as as evidence uh, in the trial. They claimed that they should have been inadmissible. They shouldn't have gone to the jury. And the fact that they did, he claims, you know, denied him his right to a fair trial. There were other grounds of appeal too. They claimed that prejudice was allowed to creep into proceedings. And one of the grounds of appeal related to the trial judge himself, Mr Justice Tony Hunt, uh, they claimed that at one point in the latter stages of the trial that he looked disapprovingly at Graham Dwyer in the dock. They claimed that he glared down at him uh, from the judge's bench and that if a juror had seen that look, they may have made up their mind in relation to the evidence that was being heard at that time. Clearly, all of that has been contested by the state. And as you say, we will find out in the new year uh, whether or not he has been successful. There's one particular case as well that strikes me, obviously, the political beat ranging into the court beat here uh, with the, the two of us slightly crossing over. And that was the judgment in the Supreme Court when it came to CETA. Um, one that I think a lot of people will sort of wonder, you know, what is this about? It's a trade deal. Why is it all that important? The political ramifications are going to be very interesting in 2023 um, for the stability of the government. But you might just remind us what it was the Supreme Court uh, decided about this trade deal with Canada that we are due as a country to ratify. Well, this is this was um, and is a landmark ruling. And, you know, that label is tossed around all the time when it comes to Supreme Court judgments. This was a very complex case taken by Green Party TD Patrick Costello. And the ramifications for the government and for the way these things are ratified in a country like Ireland are significant. Clearly, and Patrick Costello is in agreement that trade deals are important and this is a major trade deal between Europe and Canada. And it has provisionally been ratified since 2017. So all of those barriers, you know, that would have existed in the past when it comes to trading with Canada um, have essentially fallen away over the past few years. But the main bone of contention and the main sticking point for Mr Costello and his legal team related to the setting up of so-called investor courts, you know, whereby and the crux of the problem is that when it comes to regulation or when it comes to a government building policy on a particular issue, whether it be the environment or labour law or something like rent controls, that if that affects an investor's bottom line, they can, and we've seen it in other jurisdictions, they can go to the court and sue the state. So if a government makes a decision that affects their investment, they can theoretically 
take them to court over it. And we've seen judgments being made in other jurisdictions that have cost taxpayers elsewhere billions of euro. And that was the issue here. And ultimately, and it was a close call, seven Supreme Court judges decided on Mr. Costello's case. And in the end, it fell four to three. So it was a very, very tight call. But in the end, what they decided was that the um, the ratification of this treaty, as it stands, would have been unconstitutional. But interestingly, they were also of the opinion that that could possibly be done with certain tweaks and changes to legislation. So that will no doubt appear in the headlines again in 2023. Absolutely. And the government saying that they think they can avoid a referendum on this, which would be possibly the most boring referendum in terms of the what's on the ballot, but a very, very important one. Uh, Frank Rainey, our courts correspondent. Busy 2023 ahead for you. And thanks for joining us on this review of the year. Thanks, Sean. The 2022 Review with Sean Defoe. This is News Talk. The 2022 Review with Sean Defoe on News Talk. Welcome back to the third and final part of this look back at the news year that was 2022. And we're going to start this section with a look back at some of the famous faces to pass away this year. And I would do anything for love But I won't do that Singer Meatloaf died in January reportedly from complications arising from COVID-19. Cricket legend Shane Warne died in March after being found collapsed in his room in Thailand. While the star of The Wanted, Tom Parker, died on March 30th, aged just 33, after a battle with brain cancer. On the 3rd of April, June Brown, best known as Dot Cotton from EastEnders, passed away aged 95. I mean, you wouldn't need ever to come round again. I mean, except for a cup of tea, of course. I don't drink tea. Well, coffee then. Oh, and a nice bit of balaclava. Oh, your father used to love his balaclava. Quite a number of wise guys passed away this year as well. In May, Goodfellas star Ray Liotta. In July, James Caan from The Godfather and more recently Elf. And also this year, Tony Sirico, best known as Paulie Walnuts from The Sopranos. You ever feel like nothing good was ever going to happen to you? Yeah, and nothing did. So what? Amazing thing about snakes is that they reproduce spontaneously. You're not going to believe this. He killed 16 Czechoslovakians. Guy was an interior decorator. Eurovision contestant and Grease star Olivia Newton-John passed away in August, age 73. Gangster's Paradise rapper and star of many a country hall around Ireland, Coolio, passed away in September. October saw the death of Murder, She Wrote star Angela Lansbury, age 96, while Harry Potter star Robbie Coltrane, a.k.a. Hagrid, died just a few days later. Now you listen to me, all three of you. You're meddling in things that ought not to be meddled in. It's dangerous. What that dog is guarding is strictly between Professor Dumbledore and Nicholas Flamel. Nicholas Flamel? I shouldn't have said that. I should not have said that. I shouldn't have said that. Within Ireland, one particular death truly affected the country. That of Vicky Phelan. Someone I and many people thought of as something of a hero who brought the cervical chick scandal to light. There are no winners here today. I am terminally ill and there is no cure for my cancer. My settlement will mostly be spent on buying me time and on paying for clinical trials to keep me alive and to allow me to spend more time with my children. If I die, and I truly hope that won't be the case, the money will provide for my family. 
The women of Ireland can no longer put their trust in the cervical check programme. The conduct of cervical check in the HSE in my case and in the case of at least 10 other women who we know about is unforgivable. To know for almost three years that a mistake had been made and that I was misdiagnosed is bad enough, but to keep that information from me until I became terminally ill and to drag me through the courts to fight for my right to the truth is an appalling breach of trust. But of course there was one particular death this year that rang across the world. The BBC is interrupting its normal programmes to bring you an important announcement. This is BBC News from London. Buckingham Palace has announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. In a statement, the palace said the Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. After 70 years on the throne, Britain's longest-serving monarch passed away and the UK went into mourning. Leaders from across the world descended on London for the funeral, paying their respects to someone who had been on the world stage longer than any of them. Our own Henry McKean was in London while the Queen was lying in state and caught up with the crowds waiting to see her. I feel quite emotional. <laughs> it's quite powerful. Yeah, very much so. I don't even know why. Yeah, you, <laughs> I don't you're even know. feeling an atmosphere. It's full of respect and it's yeah, it's sort of magic there. Almost godly. You can call it like this, but you feel a, a kind of power, respect. And yeah, you realize the role she had when you walk through that. And, you know, for so many years, she was stability for so many of us. We just took her for granted. She was always there and she's gone now. And it's like the world's lost a mother. I'm sorry I made you cry. That's all right. <laughs> I'm having a chat with Mum, Ruth and Bertie, who's eight. You're just out from the lying-in state. How are you both feeling? Yeah, it was very emotional. It was uh, very calm and um, surreal, really. Beautiful. So ten hours. Was it worth it to, you know, to be in the presence of the Queen's coffin? Yeah, it was really, really worth it. It's been a long time. The kids have been amazing. It just made you realise how special she is. You know, she's ruled us for such a long time and she's been such an influential person in all of our lives. And my children have, have witnessed her um, reign as well and they're now going to see how King Charles gets on, so yeah. Berta, you're eight. Yes. You queued up for ten hours to walk past the Queen there lying in state. How was it for you? Exhausting. I ate some sweeties. I'm sure you did. Um, Henry, you spoke with one more person for whom uh, this is a historic occasion in more ways than one. Oh, absolutely. And we do live in a republic, but we've got to remember Britain didn't just pillage Ireland. They pillaged most of the world and the Commonwealth. And those people are here. This lady, she was a schoolgirl waving uh, at the Queen 70 years ago. And she's one of the last people in the queue to pay her respects. I just found it very surreal. I, I remember seeing her being crowned and I wanted to come and see her in her coffin. So you remember her crown 70 years ago? Yes, I do. I was a little girl and I remember standing in the mall watching the coach go by and it was so beautiful, so beautiful. And I know this is a personal question. How old are you? 78. So you were just eight years of age and we can hear the helicopters meaning that there's either Biden or perhaps King Charles nearby. For you walking past or being wheeled past because you're now um, using a wheelchair what yeah. was it like i just didn't 
want to go past quick, but we had to. <laughs> you took it all in? Yes, I did, yes. Such a small coffin. <laughs> Such a small coffin, because she was a small lady. She was so tiny. <laughs> she was quite small. Yes. I remember seeing her in Ireland in 2011, and she got out of her Range Rover, and the first thing I said to myself was, oh, my God, she's so small. Yes. And, and she I mean was... that in a good way. Yeah, but she small, was smaller at the end, wasn't she? Even more smaller, yeah. I'm shrinking, too. <laughs> But the Queen is dead, long live the King. Her son Charles quickly crowned. I speak to you today with feelings of profound sorrow. Throughout her life, Her Majesty the Queen, my beloved mother, was an inspiration, an example to me and to all my family. And we owe her the most heartfelt debt any family could owe to their mother. For her love affection, guidance, understanding, and example. Queen Elizabeth was a life well-lived, a promise with destiny kept, and she is mourned most deeply in her passing. That promise of lifelong service I renew to you all today. All that came in the midst of what could only be described as utter turmoil in the UK politically. News Talk's chief reporter, Barry White, made many trips to London throughout 2022. And Barry, bring us back to one of those first trips when Boris Johnson was under pressure to resign as prime minister. Yeah, I think it was just a, a bit of, it was just a complete laughing stock British politics this year. Um, and I think before I went to London in July for Boris's resignation, there was kind of the will he, won't he last. There seemed to be a controversy every other week. You know, he was under pressure just for his general policies because when the Tories got elected three years ago, they came in with this, you know, let's get Brexit done. Three years in, he wasn't getting Brexit done. So he was under pressure for his policies. I think then, you know, you had the Owen Patterson Roy, he was, he was suspended for 30 days. He was breaking lobbying rules, trying to benefit companies who paid him. Uh, he had the cost of living crisis. Uh, you had party gates when he broke lockdown rules and he was fine. So there was just so much stuff happening. But every time Boris seemed to survive, you know, every week you had journalists, political journalists from the UK on Twitter, you know, saying, oh, this is it. This is the final nail in the coffin for Boris Johnson. He can't survive. But yet he just kept surviving. But then I think that the Chris Pincher affair, um, MP Chris Pincher, he... he Got into a bit of controversy. He admitted himself he drank far too much and embarrassed himself at a London uh, club. He was accused of groping uh, two other men. Um, Boris became embroiled at this as well because he backed him, and that was one of the final nails in his coffin. Then, and then he announced he was going to resign, and then I, w- I was sent to London, and there was just a complete media circus. It's I never seen anything like it in my life. Um, I remember one of the first journalists I bumped into was a guy from Australia who travelled over, a news reporter from Australia just travelled over for, for the for this story. Um, and I think there was almost, there were still people, the media and some people in the streets of London I spoke to in the days prior to when he was going to announce he was resigning. I think some people still didn't believe that it was actually going to happen. They were like, oh, he's going to come out and say he's not resigning. You know, it's almost like that's uh, the moment in the film Wolf and Wall Street when he stands up and he's like I'm not effing leaving I think some people thought Boris was going to come out and say I'm not resigning but he then he finally did resign it was unapologetic and in the last few days I've tried to persuade my colleagues that it would be eccentric to change governments when we're delivering so much and when we have such a vast mandate and when 
were actually only a handful of points behind in the polls, even in midterm after quite a few months of pretty relentless sledging. And when the economic scene is so difficult domestically and internationally. And I regret uh, not to have been successful in those arguments. And of course, it's painful not to be able to see through so many ideas and, and projects myself. But as we've seen uh, at Westminster, uh, the herd instinct is powerful. When the herd moves, it moves. And my friends, in politics, no one is remotely indispensable. One of the things that shocked me being in London at that time was I'd say 50% of the people on the street who stopped in London were saying, oh, no, Boris has been hard done by. And so many people were saying, oh, he's just a normal guy. I remember one man I interviewed, you know, he was doing a Vox Pop, and the guy was like, oh, Boris lies. No, he's a liar. He shows that he's really normal. I was just like, is that a good thing? You know, is that what we want to see in politicians? So it was kind of strange in that way. And then the attention then turned to who was going to replace them so you kind of had that six weeks and but then eventually it became kind of a two-horse race and then as we know Liz Truss won by 22,000 votes and I remember when I arrived back in Newstock a few days after Liz Truss became Prime Minister and I remember saying to her editor I was like I'll probably be back here in a few months like she's not going to last very long and it turned out she only lasted 44 days. We set out a vision for a low-tax high-growth economy that would take advantage of the freedoms of Brexit. I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. And I remember saying at the time, like, I wouldn't be surprised if Boris Johnson tried to come back or make a comeback. And as we know, he did try. And I still believe if he had known Privately, if he had the votes to beat Rishi Sunak, he, he would have thrown his hat into the ring. I have no doubt he would have, but he didn't then. And as we know now, Rishi Sunak's the Prime Minister. But yeah, sometimes when you hear people being critical of Irish politics, you look across the water, you kind of just have to say, thank God we're not we're not as bad as it was over there. And, well, there's a few pub quiz questions in there. Yes, Liz Truss is the shortest serving British Prime Minister and by quite a distance. But no, Quasi Quarteng isn't the shortest serving Chancellor of the Exchequer, despite only lasting 30 odd days. There was someone with a shorter reign who uh, died in office. You have to remember as well the anger at the time in the Tory party at the performance of Truss and her mini budget, which almost crashed the economy. Here's MP Chris Walker. This whole affair is inexcusable. It, it is just, it is a pitiful reflection on the Conservative Parliamentary Party at every level. This is an absolute disgrace as a Tory MP of 17 years who's never been a minister, who's got on with it loyally most of the time. I think it's a shambles and a disgrace. I think it is utterly appalling. So you seem quietly... I'm, I'm, I'm livid and you know, I really shouldn't say this, but I hope all those people that put Liz Truss in number 10, I hope it was worth it. I hope it was worth it for the ministerial red box. I hope it was worth it to sit around the cabinet table because the damage they have done to our party is extraordinary. Other big political world stage topics, Michal Martin being unable to catch a break really, but catching COVID instead when he went to meet President Joe Biden in the White House for St. Patrick's Day. Feeling good, but... and. Uh... And you have my best wishes for, I know you're looking good, feeling good, but I'm looking forward to you getting it cleared as quickly as you can. 
Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, President. And um, last year, uh, we met virtually across the Atlantic. Uh, this year, we're meeting virtually across the road. <laughs> so we're getting closer. Particularly tough for him as it was his last trip to the States as Taoiseach. And just a few weeks ago, we saw a historic changeover as Michal Martin ceded the office to Leo Varadkar, the first rotating Taoiseach deal and the first time Fianna Fáil TDs voted for a Fine Gael Taoiseach. Deputy James Brown. Deputy Mary Butler. This morning, I visited the President and pursuant to the relevant provisions of Bunnacht na Hirden, I have tendered my resignation from the office of Taoiseach. During the pandemic, we all saw the best of each other, and it meant that the new coalition was born in a spirit of togetherness and hope. And I intend that spirit to continue as we implement with our partners in the Green Party the agreed programme for government. I'd also like to thank my family, friends and staff. Thank you for your work, your love and your support. When we enter public life, we choose that path. Our loved ones do not. And I want you to know that my work as Taoiseach is driven by your example and I intend to honour your confidence in me. Plenty of sporting references were made in the Dáil that day about changing captain and it was a big year in sport to run through briefly. In GAA, Limerick won the hurling senior All-Ireland, beating Kilkenny to claim three in a row. Is there more time left for Kilkenny? The referee blows the full-time whistle! Limerick are the All-Ireland champions! They have made history! You are watching history! Kerry beat Galway in the football final to win their 38th All-Ireland, led by the fantastic David Clifford. Meath did the double in the ladies' football final while beating Kerry, while Kilkenny edged out Cork in the Camogie final. In boxing, Katie Taylor defended her lightweight titles again this year. And Judge Guido Cavallari scores this bout 96-93 for your winner by split decision. And still! rugby team is the number one team in the world heading into 2023 on the back of their first ever series win against the All Blacks. Ireland's confidence and a roar as the clock goes red and Joey Carberry will kick to touch to end the game and they have done it. Last week was historic in its own right. But this raises the achievement now to simply epic proportions. While Ireland's women's soccer team qualified for next year's World Cup in one of the biggest sporting moments of 2022. Here is the free kick. We're in the 52nd minute of the second half. Brosnan takes it. That's it. Esther blows the whistle. And Ireland are going to the World Cup. What a night in Glasgow. Of course, the Men's World Cup in Qatar dominated headlines. Big questions about whether or not the World Cup should have been played there at all. A lot of apathy around the tournament, around the social rights issues, I suppose, out in Qatar as well. But it did deliver one of the best finals in history and a World Cup win for one of the greatest players in history, Lionel Messi. Montiel. will tango all night long. 
That's it for our roundup of the news year that was, and I almost feel like I could have done another hour. The news is sort of crazy at the moment, particularly the last few years. You can catch both parts one and two of this review online on the News Talk Listen Back function or search for Let Me Explain with Sean Defoe, where I'll be uploading the episodes alongside the podcast feed there. Hope you all had a very Merry Christmas. Enjoy the time off if you have it, and we'll chat to you in the new year. The 2022 Review with Sean Defoe. This is News Talk.